by for Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors with your host, Drew Kirby. Hey, this is Luke Holmes. I am Morgan Wallen. I'm Riley Green. I'm Travis Denning. Hey, I'm Aaron Lewis. Hey, it's Luke Bryan. I'm Tim McGraw. What's up? This is Ian Munsick. Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors. Another great week, another opportunity for us to bring in Wyoming Game and Fish Department to really highlight something that's been going on since 2017. That, Janet, I think this is uh, probably one of the highlights of over the last six years, and that's bringing the sauger back. You know, um, the Wyoming Game and Fish Department does a lot for native fish restoration, and I'm sure that a lot of listeners know a ton about our cut slam. You can travel across the state and catch the native cut, the four subspecies of native cutthroat trout in their native waters. And so it's a pretty popular program. We have hundreds of people who do it every year, and and it's kind of neat to get that certificate. But I think sometimes we forget that, um, you know, we do a lot of other restoration work. For example, for those of you that love the walleye, we have reintroduced its cousin, the sauger, um, which was native, you know, clear back in the 1850s in the North Platte River. And we have with us today our fisheries biologist for the the portion that we're reintroducing of the North Platte River, Nick Coburg. Nick, uh, this is exciting. It, It really is. And last year I had a couple of opportunities to be in a boat where a sauger was was caught and you know the excitement that the guys get off of being able to catch a fish like this is is pretty cool yeah that's cool I'm, I'm glad to hear people are enjoying the fish we've been really encouraged to see them take as as well as they have in the north platte river and glendo reservoir and i'm glad to see you know anglers also enjoy having them back in the system. We were all talking a little bit earlier that the history of the sauger here in central Wyoming, it really goes back to when Fort Laramie was active. Yeah. So, you know, clear back in the the mid 1800s, the 1850s or so, they're a major food source in Fort Laramie. I mean, how great is that, that, you know, we can look back and see these historical records and know that the North Platte River had sauger at that time frame. Nick, you've been hands-on in this entire process, and it has to make you feel pretty good also when you know that, that they're taken back to the North Platte and, and really making it their home again. Yeah, sure. And I guess I have to acknowledge that I've been in this job only for the last two years, and all the, the legwork for this reintroduction started several predecessors ago, really back in the mid 2000s with, you know, trying to find a source and trying to understand like what all the moving parts would be with the reintroduction. And so in some ways I'm getting to do the coolest part of work that other people, you know, struggled for years to to make happen. So I feel fortunate about that. Do you have a ballpark estimate on about how many Saugers are, are running right now through the North Platte and in Glendo? So in April and May, especially, it seems like we can catch them pretty easily in the river upstream of Glendo uh, with our electrofishing gear. And it's predominantly mature. So like three to five year old fish that are that up in the river. I think a lot of the smaller ones uh, spend more time in the reservoir. But I, I couldn't even guess at a number of how many there might be. But, you know, we can easily electrofish 30 or 50 a day. Uh, when we go out and look, uh, especially that time of year. And and uh, and I've gotten reports of several that anglers are catching in the reservoir in the spring as well. You guys have, have been stocking these uh, since 2017. What was the process leading up to that? I know you, you had mentioned that you kind of came in late in the game, but 
the process of finding them and and getting the ball rolling? Yeah, so as you and probably a lot of listeners know, our hatchery system in Wyoming is geared toward producing a lot of cold water species, especially various types of trout. And so whenever we want to stock a warm, what we term a cool or warm water fish, like walleye or sauger or any uh, like crappie and sunfish, we have to uh, negotiate trades with other states that have the infrastructure to make those fish. And so a, a big part of that scoping was just finding a source that was producing sauger and then ideally matching it with uh, like a river source and, and a source that was coming from a similar climate, uh, various considerations like that that make it more likely to be successful. So, you know, that that took several years to dial in exactly where the fish would come from and how many we could get and how what size we could stock them out and things like that. Um, so then once that was all worked out, we agreed to what we initially wanted was a five-year introduction where we would stock every year for five years and then take time off so we could watch what they do and then more easily detect any wild sauger that were spawned, you know, by not stocking them anymore. Um, unfortunately, the first year in 2017, we weren't able to get nearly as many fish as we hoped. We, there was some issues in the production end. Um, so we ended up stocking them for six years in a row with 2022 being the last year. Um, and so now we're going to take a, some time off to wait and see if we have any wild sauger show up in the next few years. And you guys have uh, a ways to track certain fish throughout the way you have them tagged and, and electronics in them so that you can read the progress and, and where they're going. That's right, Drew. It's, it's really kind of neat. We talk a lot about the show about kind of those, you know, the big game, the things that we can all see. And so we talk about collaring and how, you know, we watch what what all these animals do across migration routes. It's the same with fish. And that's what's really neat is, is we were able to use that technology to learn more about what Sagar were doing. Yeah. So starting last year in 2022, I began a radio telemetry project with sauger and three other fish species that um, were going to give us a better idea of their movement from Glendo up into the North Platte River and more specifically which uh, barriers or, or low head dams in the river were passage issues for these species. So last year I put radio tags in 27 sauger and then I'm going to put about that many more tags out this spring in 2023 and that project will continue through at least the end of 2024 uh, before transmitter batteries start dying um, to get a, a better picture of, of what migration looks like in the river and whether certain barriers like the Orin Weir are uh, you know, a considerable impediment to their use of the river. When you're using these tags, uh, obviously it's not harmful to the fish, uh, but if someone were to catch one of these fish, uh, what should they do? What should the, be the process then? Just from a legal standpoint, it's not any different than any other fish that they would catch of, of that species. You know, obviously in terms of my project and the work that goes into marking fish, I would prefer the tagged fish that have radio tags be released back to the water alive um, just to save the effort and uh, get more information from those fish while they're alive. Um, it's obviously up to the angler to make that choice, but if they do choose to harvest the fish or if it's mortally hooked or whatever and it doesn't make sense to release it, 
There's an external tag on the dorsal fin with a phone number. Um, I'd love to meet up and find a way to get the radio tag back so that I can put it back in another fish. And Drew, on our website, you can um, go into the search bar and type in Sauger and some news releases and some videos from our YouTube channel will pop up and you can see Nick do these fantastic surgeries um, on these fish to insert these tags. And so that might give anglers a little bit more perspective on the effort that is going in to kind of track these native species and, and what Nick means by, you know, it would be kind just to release it again um, to save a little bit of work. It's pretty awesome to watch these guys do stitches. Uh, you had mentioned that Last year was the last year that you'll be stocking for a couple of years. Uh, how long are you going to give it until you guys will restock uh, again? Well, that's to be determined. I mean, the whole point of not stocking for a few years is to let off. And so that at, in the coming years, if we start seeing young, small sauger, we know that they're not the product of stocking and that those are, fish are spawning and recruiting successfully. Um, if we see that successful recruitment, I would guess we probably will not stock again. Kind of anecdotally, last year we saw the first adult sauger in the river that had mature eggs. And so we have some pretty good, solid anecdotal evidence, at least, that they did spawn last year. So hopefully, like by by next year, at least, those fish should be showing up. Well, again, if you haven't uh, learned a lot about the sauger and you want to find out more about it, wgfd.wild.gov is a great way to, to go and, and find out more information and definitely watch those videos. And very quickly, as we're moving along here in the show, uh, the sauger, they're cousins to the walleye. How much do they look like walleye, Nick? Yeah, that's one thing we hear a lot, and, and it's true. They're so closely related that they do have a lot of similarities, and especially just from a silhouette view, they're very similar. And so the, the primary differences are all based on coloration. Um, so the sauger will always have rows of dark circular or crescent-shaped spots on its dorsal fin. And while I don't have that, even though some do have some pigment on their dorsal fin, it won't be the rows of little dots. And then the final biggest thing or bigger thing is the, the tail fin on a walleye has that characteristic white tip on the lower lobe that everybody I think has probably seen who walleye fishes. Will the size of a, a sauger and walleye be different or are they close enough related that uh, a sauger will grow as big as a walleye? Generally, there's a, a ton of overlap in the size that you'll see. I think if you look through a bunch of historical data throughout Wyoming that like walleye will often reach a larger top size. But if you look at the whole range of sizes of all the intermediates, I mean, they overlap probably 98%. So um, it's not a not a really a size difference that you can rely on. And since we're trying to reintroduce these and uh, you know make them repopulate themselves, uh, are there regulations on these fish when you catch them of how many you can keep and the size? Yep, absolutely. So across the whole state of Wyoming, the sauger regulation is the same. So whether you're fishing in the Wind River drainage or the Powder or the North Platte, you're allowed two sauger in in your bag or possession, and there's no size restriction. And so it's obviously a lot more restrictive than walleye because they are a spe native species that we're trying to conserve and enhance their populations. So we do have a more restrictive, 
harvest regulation. Awesome. Well, if you, again, if you want to find more information out, you can go to wgfd.wild.gov. Nick, Janet, thank you. Yep, thank Thanks, you, Drew. Game and Fish, of course, every week on this program. We'll have them back on another great topic next week. And if you want to find out more information about Sagar, you can hit them up inside the website, wgfd.yo.gov. We continue with Brian Woodward from Rocky Mountain Discount Sports next. It's Wyoming hooking and hunting outdoors. Welcome back. It's Drew along with Brian Woodward from Rocky Mountain Discount Sports on Wyoming hooking and hunting outdoors. And Brian, this week, uh, ups and downs. It was nice weather, then it snowed, and then nice weather again. Yeah, you know, it was really nice. Uh, we had uh, the biathlon guys here in town. They were uh, competing, I guess, uh, I think part of the Olympic team qualifications. And uh, so, yeah, they got a nice, uh, fresh little dumping of snow and kind of made things interesting up there. You know, it's interesting how much we take it for granted that that is right here in our backyard. We had people here from all over the country, and they were just raving about how great it is up on Casper Mountain. Yeah, it's really, really cool to see how much effort they put into just maintaining and grooming those courses and the number of shooting stations that they had. I don't think most of us even realized that, that it was there. And obviously doing an event like that or uh, being uh, snowshoeing or cross-country skiing, you got to have the proper apparel. You don't want to be too hot. You don't want to be too cold or restricted. Yeah, we had uh, quite a few people that, you know, maybe maybe we were expecting to be super cold and, and uh, we're layered up a little bit too much and we're coming in and uh, scaling down a little bit. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, the, the sun came out and, and the, the big W uh, held out for us, so it wasn't terrible up there for him and... Um, yeah, we, we've, we've got uh, everything that they needed to kind of get them through. On the other hand, we're hoping for nice weather so we can get out on the boats on the open water. And you guys are in getting your reels and rods all stocked up and you're ready to go for the fishing season. Yeah, you know, we've been talking boat prep quite a bit. So, um, you know, I, I jumped in my boat the other day and realized, yep, I needed a few no- more uh, Plano boxes. I had s- some stuff that was, you know, maybe in some shopping bags from the uh, from the the winter months where I thought I needed more stuff and uh, and then uh, just looking at respooling a bunch of my fishing poles and just getting ready for that first open water. You know, doing that and being prepared is one thing, but you get a little anxious because you want to get out on the water, but not quite yet. And obviously during all this preparing and there are some items that you make sure you always put in your boat that maybe you always have. What are a couple that you have? You know, one of the things that I uh, was going through my boat is, you know, I've got a set of uh, rain gear. Um, actually, I've got a set of uh, some guideware that's kind of a uh, insulated guideware. Again, you're going to want to be able to layer up a little bit. I've got mine just in a dry bag that I throw under a seat, get nice, nice waterproof tops and bottoms, maybe a nice knit hat and maybe some gloves um, just to break that wind a little bit because those first couple trips on the water, you know, they, they can be gr- grueling with the wind and whatnot. And when April comes in in a little while, not only are we excited about fishing, but turkey hunting will begin not long after that. And we're going to have the uh, National Wild Turkey Federation on with us. And you guys are pretty stocked up with all the guns and 
camo and ammo. Yeah, we've got we've got shotguns that'll basically handle just about any age level and any you know experience level. But one of the more popular ones that we've been uh, selling quite a few of is just a single shot Rossi um, Toughy Turkey. And it's great for a youth hunter. Um, it's good just to kind of pack in the back of a side by side. It's it's small. It's compact. You can rig it up with a with a scope. Um, it's if you really want to take a. It's a pretty inexpensive shotgun, but you know a lot of times we're putting a two or three hundred dollar piece of optics on top. Maybe a a nice reflex sight or a red dot sight. Um, they look pretty cool and uh, really pr they're pretty price conscious. Another piece of equipment that a turkey hunter or duck hunter, pheasant hunter may get uh, is a choke tube. And what, what do you guys carry choke tube-wise? Yeah, we, we primarily carry Carlson's uh, choke tubes. But, um, you know, a lot of people are uh, shooting the TSS um, out of that, uh, those shotguns. You know, they're pretty effective for turkeys up to 40, 50, 60 yards. Um, so the biggest thing when you're running that uh, TSS or those, that steel shot is not to constrict that, um, that choke too much. You need to at least be shooting a modified choke. Uh, if you're shooting a full choke, uh, that steel shot and that new tungsten stuff just really doesn't um, doesn't have any give, and you can blow out a barrel. So be cautious on that. Well, let's kind of go back on these choke tubes a little bit and explain what they're used for and, and what different types there are. Yeah, so, I mean, a full choke is obviously the tightest pattern that you're going to – that can have. Um, and then there's, you know, probably eight or nine different, you know, choke styles all the way up to um, cylinder bore, which basically is just as wide open as you can get. So most people for most hunting applications will run a modified, um, but it's good to pattern your gun. You know, grab a, grab a target, grab a piece of cardboard, get out there and see, see what it looks like at 30, 40 yards and get, get an idea of, you know, the shell that you're shooting, see how many of those BBs are, you know, whether it's shooting a little high or high to the left or shooting it to the right. Um, every shotgun's a little bit different and every box of ammo is a little bit different. So getting out there and patterning it just to make sure a lot of people will take a, a look at, you know, how many pellets they're getting in a, like a two foot radius at 30 yards and gives you an idea of what your shot pattern is going to be when you actually pull the trigger on that turkey. Well, if you're interested and you want to find out more information, uh, come on in Rocky Mountain Discount Sports. Uh, also, you've got calls, you've got camo, you've got everything you need. Come on in, check it out. Wyoming hooking and hunting outdoors. It's Drew and Brian back. Rocky Mountain Discount Sports on Wyoming hooking and hunting outdoors. And you went this week and you got the itch. You went and got to your boat. And you started looking through it and combing through it and make sure no mice didn't eat your wires <laughs> or anything like that. It's a sad, sad world when the mice are eating the wires. Oh, yeah. We're, we're, all, we're all good there, but someone's going to have that problem, guaranteed. It was either a rabbit or a mouse or something. <laughs> uh, when you were doing that, did you stumble across anything? You mentioned that you had to get some extra Plano boxes because you found some extra goodies that you found and had from earlier in the winter. And is there anything else that really jumps at you that every year you need to make sure? This whole winter we've been mm -hmm. talking about batteries, right? And I've had my boat plugged in and I've been uh, resetting the onboard charger to make sure that those batteries maintain a good, a good charge. But apparently I had two batteries and they just happened to be starting batteries that had just given up the ghost. Oh, and no. uh, so, yeah, those had to be repaired or replaced. But the one thing I would, would say is that there's not a whole lot of options for the batteries that I'm using in my boats in Casper. And so there are places that sell them, but everybody was out of stock on them. Oh, so right. 
if you think that you're just going to be able to go down to O'Reilly's and pick yourself up a you know a 31 series AGM for your you know Verado, you're probably going to have to order it. So give yourself a little bit extra time when you get the chance to get the boat out there. If your onboard charger is not uh, maintaining those batteries, you know well enough. Throw a regular charger on them and and try to give them a good good jolt and see if the batteries will come back to life. But there's a good chance, you know. I mean, these batteries I've had in my boat are were five years old, which is really good for yeah. for these types of batteries, especially in the conditions that we put them through. And I kind of figured I was going to have to replace a few batteries, and sure enough, I did. The planning part out of it is the the good part. But the fact you had to go spend a couple hundred bucks on batteries is not something most people can do just on the fly like that. Well, it was nice that I found it in the garage as opposed to at the boat ramp. Yeah. So, yeah, don't don't be that guy. Also, when you're, you're combing through your boat, there's a lot of safety gear that you have to have. If you uh, get approached by a game warden or a you know, member of a Game and Fish, they're going to ask for a few certain things to make sure that you have and you know life jackets and fire extinguishers and if you don't have a horn you got to have whistles and horns and all kinds of stuff so a throw cushion's another big one you know just making sure that you have all the standard stuff before you head out yeah the other thing you know as i i was noticing i was pulling some rods out of the rod locker and of course i had you know some some late fall presentations still you know uh, on on my rods and as i'm taking off the the jigging wraps and checking my line you know i was realizing that a lot of my lines getting kind of brittle so you know now it's going to be down to stripping line off those reels and and getting them restrung so when you go through a, a boat situation like that so maybe you go two or three years before you do a swap out of all the line or do you do that every year i swap mine out twice a year almost do you yeah it just depends i mean a lot of my jigging rods i mean the you know, you'll get snagged up enough throughout the year that the spool will get down where it just isn't casting very well, or maybe it's just got twisted so much that it's just not not performing the way you want it to. So, you know, especially if I'm going getting ready to for a big tournament or something, I I don't want to have brittle line. It's pretty inexpensive to swap out line. Uh, it's way way better to do that than to lose a fish at the at the boat because it snapped off. I can remember as a kid when my grandpa would would restring his rods and, and reels that he would have some little setup that it was perfect for him. I believe it was a pencil between his toes. <laughs> That's the one. And, and it just he just spun it right on through. But as modern technology has moved on, they've actually come out with a little easier way maybe to to do that kind of a situation. It's a lot easier just to bring your spools into Rocky Mountain and just have us do them. <laughs> yeah, well, you know? that's I mean, true, too. Honestly, it's, you know, it gets on there nice and tight, and uh, it gets spooled on there. You you only pay for what you what you get spooled on there. You don't have any waste at the end of a, of a, a spool. So I tend to do most of mine just, you know, take them off, bring them to the store, get them done. Which that makes it really simple, but, yeah. you know, I mean, it's – it's not as fun as the pencils between the toes. Right, but you know how many times were you chasing the spool because it slipped <laughs> off the pencil or burned your hands or <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, there's the the boat prep. You know, we we've got uh, the end of next month. We're, we're about thirty days away. Uh, Alcova Tough Man Tournament North Platte Wallace is putting on, so um, that's coming up, and uh, that's usually well. Hopefully, we'll have ice off, but. Uh, the conditions usually are pretty rough. Um, could be cold. Uh, could be super nice as well. So 
making sure the boats are prepped, safety equipment's working, um, make sure the boat's registered, make sure you got your insurance, all those little things that you just you know, we don't think about. You know, it's a good time to just spend time to get it organized. And make sure you come in here, and, and if maybe you have a few rods that need upgraded, you know, you can check it out here at Rocky Mountain Discount Sports, or if you just need new line, yeah. come on in and do that. Yeah, there's a, you know, we talked a few weeks ago, uh, Pure Fishing, Berkeley came out with a bunch of new crankbaits this last year. The Money Badger is one that is really intriguing to me. The Hit Sticks, another one. Um, there's some new plastics out there. They've got the new HD uh, Ripple Shads. That's going to be that's going to be pretty good. Um, I've always liked the Ripple Shads, especially down at Glendo. Um, so some of the some of those new colors are catching my eye. Don't forget your uh, fishing license. If you're going to do the turkey hunt like we were talking about, you got to make sure that you've got the license for that and the, the stamps and, and uh, all the goodness there. So come on out and check it out here at Rocky Mountain Discount Sports. It's Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors. Welcome in to Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors. And springtime's a great time of the year. Obviously, everybody trying to get out on the water and do some fishing, but also we're not far away from turkey hunting going, so I thought, who better to talk with than uh, Jason Tarwater, Regional Director of the Wild Turkey Federation. And, uh, man, Jason, you're a busy guy. You go all over the country. And one of the biggest uh, annual banquets is the National Banquet for the Turkey Federation there in Nashville, which just happened a few weeks ago. Yeah, it's one of the uh, one of the largest, if not the largest, uh, outdoor shows uh, in the country. This year was was even more impressive. This is our 50th anniversary as an organization, so um, obviously there was a lot of excitement built around it. Uh, we shattered attendance records, fundraising records. Um, I think we topped sixty seven thousand people. Wow. Over the, over the course of a few days, we kind of took over the town of Nashville, um, it seemed like. But, uh, yeah, it's a busy time of year for us between convention. Um, this is what we call our banquet season. So this is the main fundraising portion of the year for us uh, for, for a few months in the spring, right before turkey season and getting into turkey season. So uh, everybody's uh, running 100 miles an hour right now, that's for sure. With that national convention in, in Nashville, you know, you have the Nashville community there, which – a lot of the the country singers and the producers and the record folks are all turkey hunters. And really, everybody comes there because it's such a big deal. There's so many people that love turkey hunting. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a cool place to do it. It's a fun place to do it. Um, we always have some country music artists that are part of it. Uh, Riley Green was kind of our headline headliner this year for uh, our, our Saturday night dinner. Um, we've had some really good shows in the past, uh, but yeah, it's, it, we picked it specifically for that. It's an entertaining city. How does the national wild Turkey Federation help conservation? I mean, you guys draw that many people and you do all these banquets. So that means you guys are giving back a lot. We're probably one of the most successful, uh, conservation groups when it comes to actually putting money on the ground and getting projects done. And some of our big things that we do we have a huge outreach program. Um, getting kids and women and, and even just um, non-hunting adults into the outdoors. We're big into, uh, you know, access, like for instance, in Wyoming, access, yes, is a, is a, a big deal for a lot of people um, to allow access for hunting. And we give a huge percentage every year of our, our funding capabilities to that program. You know, obviously habitat is, is vital, uh, not only for wild turkeys, but for, you know, 
grouse and deer and elk and you know all the species and you know we we probably uh we we probably cover it all um if you really stop and think about it so i, I think that's why our national show such a success as people realize you know not only are we working for the wild turkey across the country but we're kind of working for for all outdoorsmen recreationists all species of wildlife you know the national wild turkey federation is so big and popular would you say that's because there's turkey hunting pretty much all over the country you're not hunting mule deer everywhere you can't hunt moose everywhere or elk but turkey they're everywhere yeah it's uh it's a really good introductory sport um to get into hunting too just because you know typically tags are a lot less expensive uh like you said opportunities everywhere uh every state but alaska has a turkey hunting season um, even Hawaii, you know, Hawaii is actually becoming very popular for, to vacation and, and go on a turkey hunt. We, we've put a lot of effort, you know, in several years. And like, like I mentioned, this is our 50th anniversary. There's a lot of states that didn't have wild turkeys or a turkey hunting season 50, 60 years ago. And, uh, you know, Wyoming's one of them. Where I live here in Montana, a lot of the Western states didn't have turkeys or turkey season. But with the efforts of us, with the state and federal land agencies, um, you know, the, the, the habitat is there, obviously, uh, to support wild turkeys. And there's not really too many negative downsides to introducing them or reintroducing them. And so there's a lot of opportunity across the country now that, that wasn't there, say, 30, 40, 50 years ago. What kind of work goes in to introducing uh, turkeys into, say, Wyoming when, you know, you said that they weren't really here, but then now there seems to be a plenty of, of turkey? Yeah, I mean, the main thing is uh, evaluating habitat. I mean, the birds not only need place to nest and raise their broods uh, after they hatch, but one of the, the big limiting factors in Wyoming for turkeys is surviving the winters that we have. Typically, some type of ag has to be around. Um, you know, there's a lot of birds that that make a living in the winter off of, uh, unfortunately, off of haystacks and feedlots and things like that. And that's where sometimes they'll get a little bit of a na- bad name for themselves. But um, they've got to be able to make it through the winter. And there's got to be a food source around, especially when we get, you know, heavy snows and the cold weather. Where the, the habitat is suitable for those birds to live year round in Wyoming, there's they're pretty much there's birds there. State did a good job um, of putting birds where they thought they could make it, and in a lot of cases, they've they've thrived. Uh, and downtown Casper is one of those yeah, lo- locations. There, there's a few places where they do get a bad name for themselves. Uh, downtown Casper, you know, up in the Sheridan Buffalo area, they're in the foothills of the Bighorns, kind of the same boat. Um, those those one-offs are kind of comical at times. They can be a pain in the butt at times too. But uh, yeah, it's just uh, the nature of the beast, I guess. When you do see them, I mean, that makes you confident if you're a turkey hunter to know that this area is suitable for the yeah. turkeys to survive. Yeah, no, when you're seeing them in areas like that, um, that that tells you that there's you know more wild birds somewhere around once you get out of town, and that's that's the case with Casper. You know, there. Um, that Laramie Range south of town and the foothills and things like that has has birds. And in fact, further south of that um, is one of the first, if not the first, introduction of the wild turkey um, was in the Laramie Range, obviously, years ago. One of the interesting things talking to folks here in the Casper area is there are guys that really haven't had much experience with the hunting. It, it really hasn't caught on hunting-wise for a lot of folks, even bird hunters that are 
pheasant hunting or duck hunting every year. Yeah, and it's kind of still a new thing in, in a lot of the western states. And I see the same thing here in Montana is it's actually taking off as being more popular spring activity. Um, so it's really cool to see. Um, it's helping us, you know, throughout our volunteer ranks too. Is you get more people that are more interested in, in turkey hunting. So they're reaching out to our local chapters, asking how they can help out, what they can do. In all reality, compared to, you know, in the Midwest or the, the Eastern States, it's relatively a new, a new thing turkey hunting is. And it's, like I said, it's, it's really cool to see that happening. For those that maybe are, are just thinking about starting and and going to go out this year for the first time. What are some things they need to really keep in mind when you're going out to to hunt these turkeys? Try to keep it simple. I mean, you can get wrapped up just like elk hunting or anything else. You can get wrapped up into a, a lot of excess detail. But uh, turkeys have, you know, very keen eyesight, and that's the main thing. Um, camo, obviously, is, is crazy important when it comes to turkey hunting, uh, gloves face mask i mean they can see the shine of of your skin that'll spook them i've seen that happen finding the birds is the biggest challenge they're not everywhere typically earlier in the season they're still kind of in their little winter winter groups pockets biggest thing i tell people when it comes to trying to locate them is if you have an idea of where there might be birds um it's no different than trying to locate elk in september find a high spot find a place where you can hear long distances birds will actually starting about right now through the entire season they're gobbling like crazy on the roosts um establishing their pecking order and dominance um so early mornings at sunrise you know finding the high spots where you can hear um on a clear morning those gobbles will carry for quite a ways um that's typically the the easiest thing um when it comes to locating them getting on down to some more finer details obviously you want to get a shotgun that that patterns well there's all kinds of, you know, targets that, that you can buy to help help you do that. Um, YouTube can be your friend when it comes to different things with, with turkey hunting. But, yeah, the biggest thing is is locating them. Awesome. Jason Tarwater, National Wild Turkey Federation. Now, we've found the turkeys, so how do you call them in? Jason gives us some tips coming up on Wyoming Hunkin' and Hunting Outdoors. It's Wyoming Hunkin' and Hunting Outdoors. It's Wyoming hooking and hunting outdoors. Hey there, it's Drew. You can always hit us up in the My Country 95.5 app if you have any questions, comments, or concerns. We're talking with Jason Tarwater from the National Wild Turkey Federation. And Jason, we were mentioning about hunting turkeys. And you see a difference of turkeys in the fall and turkeys in the spring. The main difference is in the spring, you know, these birds are, are going through their mating rituals. Um, so there's a lot, they're a lot more talkative. Uh, you know, the difference between that and in the fall, in the fall, you're typically finding big flocks, maybe setting up in front of them, ambush points, spot and stock type of a thing. In the spring, which uh, my personal opinion is the best time of year to turkey hunt, you're interacting with the birds, calling them. Um, using that that mating ritual time frame kind of to your advantage. It's, it's a lot more fun to me and and people that you know. I, I don't think there's too many people that would disagree that are that are avid turkey hunters. I mean, it's it's no different than chasing down a bugle and bull and trying to get him to come into to archery range or something like that. So, what kind of a, a call can a a beginner uh, look at and be able to pick up quickly? I mean, you mentioned YouTube earlier. That obviously is going to be a real big assist on your part. A couple of the easiest ones are um, 
that I always try to recommend is box calls. They're, they're pretty self-explanatory. They're, they're easy to run and operate. What they call pot calls, which can be a, a surface of either slate or glass. Um, there's a few other styles out there. Slate. A slate call is probably also one of the easiest. That, that's what I always try to recommend to, to beginners. Uh, if somebody is used to elk hunting, you know, and, and calling elk with the diaphragm call, a mouth call, that's my go-to. I've obviously I've been doing it a long time. Um, but if you're used to running one, it's just a little bit different pitch and tone. And um, anybody that's ran elk calls before can pick up on a diaphragm call pretty pretty quickly. Typically, morning hunt, midday hunt, evening hunt. Is there a better part of the day? Early in the season, the birds are still in pretty big flocks. Um, Toms might have, you know, groups of anywhere from five, six to 20 hens flocked up, just like a, just like an elk would with his harem of cows. It can be a little tougher sometimes. They haven't been called out a lot, which is good, but it's really hard to pull a, a tom from, you know, a big group of live birds, live hens. But as, as season progresses, when birds fly down in the morning, um, hens start leaving to go sit on nests throughout the day. Some of my favorite time frames have been, you know, after 10 o'clock in the morning when that starts happening. Sometimes you can find those toms out by themselves. Their hens ran off. They lost them, something like that. And then also later in the season. I mean, I, I hunt in April. I don't get really excited until about that May time frame because for one, with our weather, your, your odds of getting better weather, at least um, in May, are, are a lot better. The other reason is a lot of those hens have been bred. They're, they're kind of dispersed now. They're not in big flocks. And so it's a lot easier to find a tom um, by himself, you know, looking for maybe that last remaining hen that hasn't been bred. Uh, typically, they're a lot easier to call in. I, that's, I prefer mid midday and towards the, the last half of the seasons, typically. Now, Jason, are you using shotgun or are you into the archery turkey hunts? I've done both. I've gone back and forth. I went through a little a little spell of archery only for a while, just for the added challenge. Uh, anymore with the way my scheduling is with banquets and being on the road, uh, I like to be a fit more efficient. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, there are several times if I would have had a shotgun in my hand instead of my bow, I could have put a tag on a bird. So, so anymore, um, I typically are, I'm running around with a shotgun in my hands. Um, I, I have scaled down. I use a 20 gauge anymore just because they're lighter to carry around with the technology of the shotgun shells these days and choke tubes, things like that. You can still be, be very, very deadly with, with even a 20 gauge. And there's guys that are now their challenges, you know, four tens, which is cool. Um, you just got to know your, know your limits like everything else. Well, really excited, uh, Jason, that you spent some some time with us and, and really appreciate you doing that because, like we mentioned, a lot of people uh, haven't really jumped into the, the turkey hunting yet, but hopefully we can get them fired up. And, uh, and like you said, it's so much easier to get a tag or a license for yep. uh, turkey hunting than it is for a big game. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's definitely a, an opportunity an opportunity sport. I've always tell people if you like elk hunting in September, like try turkey hunting and and don't don't be afraid to get away from the ranches and the feedlots where you see them in the in the winter all all grouped up because in a lot of people's eyes that's not much of a hunt, not much of a fun hunt. But if you wait later in the year, those birds disperse away from those feed sites, and that's when you can can really chase them around the hills. and And it is it's just like a 
spring elk hunt um with a heck of a lot easier pack out if you if you do kill one <laughs> yeah no doubt <laughs> jason tarwater regional director of the uh, national wild turkey federation you want more info go to nwtf.org jason man thanks again and definitely want to talk to you again down the road and see how you fare this uh this spring yeah absolutely i appreciate you having me on and uh yeah anytime man awesome thanks so much jason Jason Tarwater, Wild Turkey Federation. A big thanks to Brian Woodward and Rocky Mountain Discount Sports, along with Brooks Company, for making this show possible. Now remember, you can catch all of our shows on demand in our station's app. Have a great week. We'll talk to you next time on Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors. Wyoming Hooking and Hunting Outdoors with Drew Kirby. If you have a question, want to make a comment, or have an idea for a show topic, message us on the My Country mobile app. Wyoming hooking and hunting outdoors.